This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, pretty much anything on your heart. Um, the Bible has an answer. I'll do my best to find it for you. Uh, you can call us at 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your questions to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We'd love your calls and your participation. Hey, we're sort of back on our regular schedule tonight. I'm going to be teaching a, a monumentally important chapter. Tonight I'm actually only going to do the first six verses, and I think this week and next week, uh, especially with some of the things that we're all going through in this world, uh, a really, really important Bible study in in uh, Genesis chapter 15. That's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch it on live stream at calvarysa.com. I think like everybody else, we've only got trickles of people coming back into church for in-person church. Um, hope that changes in the near future, but for now... Uh, you can watch it at calvarysa.com tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, tomorrow is Thursday. That means the date day edition of the program. Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow. So, ladies, it's especially your day. And we set aside that program so that you can be encouraged or get some um, direction from what Paula has to say. Okay, let me get to some questions that have been sent in. First one is from our email inbox from Scott. He says, does the wording in Psalm 148, verse 14, make this a messianic psalm? Now, let me read the verse for you, and then we will uh, I'll address it. It says, he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. Um, Scott, this is not a messianic psalm. Now, I'm going by memory here. I think Psalm 118 is the last in the order of messianic psalms. But no, this is not a messianic psalm. Now, I've got strong opinions on this psalm. Uh, I I believe it was written by David, although we don't have um, the ascription to him, and so we don't know for sure who wrote it. But I think uh, verse 14 is speaking of David, David writing in in the second person. Um, um, and, and whenever you see a horn in the Old Testament, symbolically, that just represents power. So what, what David is saying, he, God, is raised up for his people, power. And then, of course, that would be the praise of all of his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. So I think it's David um, not referencing at all the Messiah to come, and this is not generally recognized, Scott, as a messianic psalm. Good question. I like when people are really digging in to their Bibles. Here's an anonymous question. I've got two anonymous questions to start today. And the first one says, what is the best way for a teen to witness to his family? Great question. Um, when we get saved, isn't it true? What we want more than anything else is for everybody to know our Jesus. We're so filled with God and so overwhelmed by His goodness. It's only natural that we want to share it. The problem is 
the place that we want to share it the most is usually the most difficult place to share. I remember when I got saved, now I wasn't a teenager by any means, but when I got saved, people, because they'd seen my life, seen what a mess I'd made of it, nobody wanted to hear anything from me, oh, you think just because you got Jesus, now you're all that. No, I just wanted people to be happy, and I understand this, especially coming from a teenager. So let me say the best way to witness to your family, and this is a principle that applies to everyone, no matter how old you are. If you want people you're closer to get saved, the best way is to demonstrate your changed life. Let God put it on display. Jesus said that no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. No, we put it up on a table so it can give light to the whole room. And that's the best way to witness. Let him see the change in you. You know, you used to use foul language, or you used to be lazy, or you used to be consumed with video games, whatever it is that you did before you got saved. And now they can see your commitment to Jesus Christ. If maybe your life was beset with sin, sexual sin, drugs, alcohol, anything, to, to see that you now serve a God, you, you've discovered a God who has so much power that he changed you. And believe me, the Holy Spirit will use that. I promise you the Holy Spirit will use that and your witness will not only be powerful and effective, but it will be refreshing to the people in your family. So we can tell them about Jesus and we should. We don't need to preach to them. We don't need to judge them or condemn them. But what we want to do is let them see that the Jesus you discovered is so powerful that he changed you. Let your heart be filled with gratitude. I don't know a lot of teenagers who are just overflowing with gratitude. But when you get saved, you ought to be. And when you do that, believe me, they're going to notice. And Anonymous, we've had so many people in our church over the years where one key person in the family gets saved, and then the rest of the family begins to fall like dominoes. And you just might be that key person in the family. So pray for them, love them. But most of all, show them your Jesus. Good question. I like that very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. It says, Pastor Ron, what's your reaction to the news stories about Florida's inflated COVID-19 numbers? Um, uh, Anonymous, um, I I don't want to be cynical. So uh, my reaction is muted. Uh, I'm not surprised. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. Um, But there's just so much about this that doesn't make sense. Now, I'm going to tell you, my reaction or my opinion is not especially an informed one. I don't spend my day digging into news stories. Um, I just think it's easy to understand why so many people are skeptical and why they are cynical. Because the things they tell us at the beginning of this haven't turned out to be true. The numbers that they've been giving from the beginning haven't been true. The numbers of people that are dying, when most of those deaths, overwhelmingly most of those deaths, haven't been from COVID-19. They were from people who were infected with the virus, but they died of other illnesses and related things. And in Florida, um, there was an investigative journalist, I'm not sure, the station. Again, I only perused the story. Um, who did some digging in. The numbers didn't seem to work. And some of those that were claiming, some cities and and uh, agencies that were claiming 100% positive tests, another one 94% positive tests, another one 88% positive tests. And when they started looking into the numbers that didn't make sense, they found those numbers were in the 4 and 6% rate. Not 94, 4 and 6% rate. Now, that's literally thousands of people, depending on how many tests were given. So let me just say this, and then I'll leave my opinion away for the rest of the program. There is a reason, there's a motive behind people wanting this pandemic to appear worse than it is don't know what the motive is. I don't know them. I can't judge their hearts. But no matter where you go, it's always chicken little. The sky is falling. Now I'm speaking to you as somebody who has 
contracted and been free of COVID-19. I was positive. There's a reason that people want the numbers to be inflated. I don't know what they are, but it's certainly suspicious. Having said that, I don't think I need to say anything more. I just don't want Christians to get involved in that stuff. And by the way, you anonymous and for the rest of our listening audience, uh, we need to be careful and balanced about all of the information that we're consuming. Got to be sure you're with Jesus. You got to be sure that you're walking in the Spirit. Because if your focus is on this epidemic, the enemy is going to make mincemeat of you. He is so much more powerful than we are. So, hope that answers your question. Here's a question from Neville. I hope I said that right, Neville. Uh, he says, God is love, so why do we say God hates the sin but loves the sinner? God cannot hate. Well, Neville, a couple of things. Um, you're wrong. Proverbs chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 16, says, and I'm going to read it verbatim, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And then he lists what those things are, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates all those things. Um, so I guess the motive here or the, the, the remedy here, Neville, is to find out why God hates those things. Why does he hate haughty eyes? That's, that's a proud look. He hates it because pride separates us from him. Pride, as you know, was the sin that caused Satan, Lucifer, to fall. God hates when we lie because sin separates us from fellowship with him, a fellowship that he paid for. He hates murder, hands that shed innocent blood. So yeah, he hates a lot of things. Now, the thing that we've got to understand, and I do not like this saying, you know, well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Um, That's not an effective way to evangelize or to minister to people. So we need never... So we need to um, truly understand God loves people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. And he hates it when we make the wrong choice. He hates the things that cause us to make the wrong choice. And I think, Neville, he couldn't be love. God cannot be love if he didn't hate those things that separate us from him. Those are the things that we have to remember all the time. Hope that answers your question adequately. Here is a question for, from Jeffrey. For those who hold to the oneness doctrine, will they be saved? Um, the oneness doctrine, for those of you who may not know, is a doctrine that says uh, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes this is called Jesus only uh, churches. Um, but, Jeffrey, the truth is that they won't be saved. You can't have the wrong God, you can't have the wrong Jesus and be saved. Only Jesus of Nazareth saves. And so to say that Jesus is more than the Son of God is to misrepresent him. He said, I and the Father are one. He identifies himself in the book of Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's exactly how God the Father is identified in the Old Testament. He's the Ancient of Days, whose origins are from old. Well, the Father is called the Ancient of Days as well. So Jesus isn't the Father, but he is the exact representation of the Father in human physical form. And Jeffrey, to reject the doctrine of the Trinity, I know people have a hard time with it. They don't understand it. How can there be three and only one God? Either there's one or there's three. Um, We're missing the point. The Bible says that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. 
So we don't have three gods. We have one God manifest in three persons. And those three persons are presented to us throughout the pages of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, as separate and distinct, yet all of them fully God. It's not like the Father is a third God and the Son is a third God and the Holy Spirit is a third God. So to say that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, is to change the character and nature of God. And you can't do that and be saved. I understand... I understand when people... when they first get saved, have a hard time with this. I do. But this is one of those things that if you'll just wrestle with it, meditate on it, let the Lord reveal himself to you. You know, I I do exercises. I've told you that before. And when I'm in the streets, so we, we've uh, I've done all my running. And uh, so then I've got some exercise in, and they're countdown exercises. And when I'm doing them, uh, when I get to the number three, uh, I'm almost done when I get there. But, but uh, before I start the exercise, I say, Lord, Number three is the number of power. I've got all this power living in me. And I want to stay connected to that power every minute of every day. And then as I count down, I say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When I repeat, Christ in me, hope of glory. In threes. And it's just me appreciating God for the fullness that he's given to each and every one of us. Jeffrey, the problem with oneness, Christians or professing Christians, is that they are changing the character, the nature, and the manifestation of that God. That's why doctrine matters. If your doctrine is wrong, if you don't have the right Jesus, then you're not saved. It's that simple. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Micah. God doesn't change, so why is the law about the death penalty changed? In the New Testament, death penalty is no longer applied. Micah, I don't know what you're reading, because it is. In um, Romans chapter 13, we're, we're, we're told that the government has been given the sword. That's a reference to capital punishment. So there's no change Um, You're right, God doesn't change. He changes the way he relates to people throughout the centuries. But he doesn't change in character. He doesn't change in nature. And um, the death penalty, while it was um, evident in our Old Testament law, the punishment uh, for violating that law, uh, it's also true in the New Testament. It's just we're told that the government has been given the authority to execute people who violate the law. And that's all of it consistent with the character of God. It's consistent with what was revealed uh, in the law, in the Old Testament. So I don't know what you really mean about why have the laws about the death penalty changed. I, I just don't know they have. Now, we've done that in our world you know, in the Old Testament, when, when the death penalty was given, it happened. I mean, it happened right away. Ask Samuel, ask Korah and his followers. Of course, in our culture, it takes decades sometimes for somebody who is convicted of murder and sentenced to death to die. So certainly nothing speedy about it loses much of its deterrent power because of that. But the death penalty, New Testament death penalty throughout the ages has always been a reflection of the heart of God toward those who cause death to others. A man who sheds the blood of men will his own blood be shed, we're told. Nathaniel says, Pastor Ron, if Jesus is so obviously true, why do so many people not believe? Nathaniel, there is one reason that people don't believe. 
in Jesus. And I'm going to I'm going to say amen to your statement that Jesus is so obviously true. I mean, you can't miss him if you're looking for him. He, he rewards the diligent seeker. You can't miss him. Especially when we first get saved, we want to know, why doesn't everybody want this? It's because they don't want to stop sinning. There's no other reason that people don't believe. Now, they'll come up with all kinds of pseudo-intellectual type answers. Well, you know, how can we know for sure? I've listened to Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and others, and, and they just spout nonsense. They'll take some obscure passage in the Bible and say, well, we don't do that now because the culture is, has evolved. Um, but the, the real reason that people don't believe is because they don't want to stop sinning. And all we have to do to come to Jesus is repent of our sin. And it's just easier, Nathaniel, for people to say, I don't believe or I can't believe. It's never that people can't believe. It's always that they won't believe. And the reason, and there's no other, no other reason, the reason they don't believe is because they want to keep sinning. Thanks for the question. Let's take a phone call. Our first one from Bastrop, Texas. Rose on line one. Rose, thanks for calling. Rose, are you there? Uh, yeah, I've got a question. Uh, I was reading in First John, or I don't know where it's exactly at. I know it's chapter 2, and it talks about, first it says, I don't give you a new commandment. But then in the next verse after that, it says, a new commandment I give you, and is that you love one another. And I know the first commandment, I kind of was thinking maybe that refers to the Old Testament, how... The Old Testament commandments was like the first five was loving God and like the second love, the second five was like loving your neighbor and stuff. So if you can clarify that, that'd be awesome. And I will listen offline. Thank you. I okay. appreciate the show. Thank you. Uh, let me find the verse. It's verse, uh, dear friends, I'm not writing you. This is verse 7, 1 John chapter 2. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, and you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Um, the, the new command, versus the old, the, the old command, you're right, when he says uh, the, the message you have heard, um, would be a reference to um, the law, it would be a reference to um, um, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, but Jesus says, no, here's the new command. I mean, this is Jesus through, through the Apostle John. He's saying, here's the new command. It's truth. This new command, it's truth is seen in him and you. Now, Rose, what a wonderful message that would have been for people who didn't understand the idea of relationship. It's still a, a wonderful Response to people that understand what relationship. You know, people that, that, well, I'm a religious person, or I go to church, or I try to be good, do those things. But John is saying, no, the new command, and the command is still to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus added to that, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the only way we can do that is, is by surrendering to Jesus Christ. No greater love has anyone than this if they lay down their life. Jesus laid down his life. And because he laid down his life, um, we see the example of what love really is. James, in his epistle, kind of says the same things. You know, well, it's written to do these things, but, but then he adds to it. And he's adding the practical changes in our lives. So it's truth that the new command is seen in Christ and you. And then he explains, because darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Well, the new command, loving one another, as we were loved by God, is only possible in the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's really what he's saying there, Rose. And remember, John is addressing all kinds of false teaching, Gnosticism in particular, um, in, in this letter. And this is a book that's all about fellowship. That's why he starts all of this in verse 6, where he says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And the way we can do that, the only way we can do that, this is the new command, 
It's to walk with him and in him. It's the reason, Rose, I keep telling people all the time, just be with Jesus. You're not going to sin when you're with Jesus. When you're not with Jesus, you're going to sin. And so many of us claim to believe, but there's no visible change in our lives. Rose, think I may have something more on the other side of the break with this as well. We've got 30 minutes left on the Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the show 340-9585 rose thank you for calling you know we we need to remember when we read first and second john in particular um, we need to remember that that John is dealing with real fellowship. And obviously, behind the scenes, is he's dealing with pretend Christians. And, and men and women who love in a manner that's contrary to the Word of God. It, it's appropriate for the time that we live in. He's talking to men and women who say Jesus with their lips, but who in reality live much closer to the devil than to the Lord. And John is writing this to say, let's put our money where our mouth is. If we say Christ, let's be certain that we're serving him. It's not enough to say Jesus. You've got to live Jesus. Whoever claims to belong to Jesus must walk with him, must walk as he walked. And over and over he tells us, for in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is light. If we're going to be with him, we've got to walk in the light. So what he's trying to do there, Rose, is make sure that we understand the reality of being a born-again believer. Thanks for the question. Let's go to Wes calling on line one from San Antonio. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Ron. Uh, Pastor Ron, good to hear from you. I hadn't, or hear your voice. I hadn't, hadn't been able to uh, tune in lately. Oh, good. Good thanks to hear from that, you, Wes. Uh, yeah. Hey, I heard you say something a while ago that kind of took me back, and maybe you could... Put some input into it. Uh, I just left a church that was of the Southern uh, Baptist Convention. And uh, anyway, they believe that you have to turn from sins to be saved. And I could have swore I heard you say that a minute ago. And I'm just kind of baffled by that. Uh, people that claim that you have to turn from sin to be saved. When First John three twenty three says, "These are the commandments that you believe on the name of Jesus and love one another." So I'm not understanding if, if I did. I, I don't know if I heard you right. Yeah, let me make, uh, let me try to do a better job of explaining it, Wes. One of the things uh, you know, we, we can pull a verse out, Romans ten. Um, um, we we can we can if you confess the name of Jesus, you're saved, and believe in the Lord with all of your heart. Um, uh, or, or the passage that you record. But, but we can't ignore all of the others that talk about repentance. We come to Jesus. Now, we can, we can know about him, but in order to know him, we have to come to him on his terms. Now, this isn't a work salvation or anything else. Uh, it's not enough just to believe and then keep living your life. Here's the truth. I think what the Bible deals with, and what First John was dealing with, I just was sharing with Rose, is that... Um, to come to the Lord on his terms means we meet him and then we're changed by him. Now, we can come to Jesus as we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what sins we're guilty of. He'll take us the way we are, but we have to commit not to staying that way. So if I am a thief, the Bible says uh, the thief must steal no more. 
I can't keep stealing and say, well, I met Jesus because I believe. So the difference is between a real profession of faith, an authentic one, and a counterfeit one. There's lots of people who will say, well, I believe in Jesus, and they're living uh, with somebody they're not married to in a sexual relationship, or they're, they're, they're alcoholics, or they're drug addicts, or just whatever the sin is. And it's just like, well, you know, grace covers my sins. I believe, so my sins are forgiven. But you have to meet the real Jesus. And Wes, I tell our people here all the time, when you meet the Jesus I met in 1991, he changes you. You cannot really have an encounter with Jesus Christ and not be changed. We have people that answer altar calls all the time. And they're emotional, their life is a mess, there's lots of tears, and there's signs of repentance. But then they don't leave the life that they were leading before they met Jesus. If you meet Jesus, if you really meet him, then you have to be changed by him. And that's the power of God. I had a question yesterday from a caller, Ronnie, and she was uh, talking about... um, um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, the description of people who had the appearance of godliness but denied the power thereof. It was the power to change that they were in denial about and describes rank unbelievers. So Wes, what we do here to meet Jesus requires repentance. Repentance is often called the first word of the gospel. John the Baptist said repent. Jesus said repent. He tells the churches. Uh, that he writes the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. They need to repent. So yeah, you if, if you're not ready to repent, then you haven't really met Jesus. So that's the key, and it's important. It's not a work salvation. It's not, well, okay, I've got to be sorry. No, when you met Jesus, you are sorry for your sin. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. So when he reveals to the person who's coming to him that, that, that he's a sinner, then he also convicts him of righteousness, the righteousness that is available only through Christ. And then the judgment is a conviction of the Holy Spirit if we don't repent, if we don't turn to God. So again, this is simple. Jesus, remember when, when Moses uh, was told uh, to come near the bush and he got close and, and uh, Jesus, who was the fire in the burning bush said, take off thy shoes for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. When we come to Jesus West, we are standing on holy ground. And we can't come and say to him, well, I believe in who you are. But I'm going to keep walking in the dirt of this world. So repentance is a U-turn in life. Before I met Jesus, and this is for me personally, it's the same thing for everybody, Wes. Before I met Jesus, I was walking away from God, walking to all the sinful things that were in my life. The moment I met him, I had to change directions and follow him. Now, we do it at different speeds. We certainly don't do it perfectly. But there is a profound change in the heart of any man or any woman who's really met Jesus. So, Wes, I hope that makes sense to you. It's not a work salvation. It's not, well, like i got to repent and be baptized, all those things. No. When you meet Jesus, you want to be obedient. And a change in life, a change in direction, is what matters. That's the proof. That's why James would say, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. What did he mean? Did we have to do works to get saved? No, he meant that when you meet Jesus, you change. That's all that is. Thanks, Wes. Appreciate it. Good to hear from you again. Here is a question from an anonymous source. How can we justify God wiping out the Canaanites in the Old Testament? Um, I'm not going to get to it tonight, Anonymous, but next Wednesday at the end of Genesis 15, God is going to say, uh, he's going to say, these, these are the punishments that are going to wait the peoples, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, uh, and all. But, but he, he, he singles out the Amorites. He says, now is not the time for the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. God waited 400 years for everyone who 
would be born who was alive in, in, in the Amorite camps to judge them. Why did he wait so long? He waited because there were still people who would believe. Not many. So their sin was full. When Joshua began his campaign in Canaan, it took seven years. It was a seven-year campaign. When that campaign began, God was judging the Canaanites. Their sin was full. There was nobody left to believe. They were all completely given over. And the Canaanites and all the other ites, they were guilty of sins that I couldn't even mention on this radio program. So vile, so wicked, we can't even begin to imagine the kind of things that they did, the way they lived their lives. And yet God was patient waiting for them. So whenever you see judgment, and that's what it is in Joshua's Canaan campaign, God was judging them for the complete and utter rejection of Jesus Christ, or of God himself. So it's very important to understand that. There's a New Testament parallel. I always like to tell people, Anonymous, to read the book of Revelation along with Joshua. Because Jesus is going to do it again. When he returns in Revelation chapter 19, he's going to wipe out all of his enemies. Now, can we say that Jesus needs to be justified? He is holy God. And his judgments are just. His ways beyond our searching out. So whenever you see God wiping out people in the Old Testament, men, women, and children, he he over and over said, don't leave any of them alive. It's because they deserved it. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, how could he kill women and children? Well, the women were used by the enemy to lead the ministry. They were just as guilty. The children are another case. When children were wiped out in Canaan, those children who died before the age of accountability, those children would have gone, we would say it this way in the New Testament construct, they've gone to be with Jesus. So God was actually showing them mercy by having them wiped out. It's not genocide. It's not infanticide. It's mercy. God was able to take those children to heaven because they didn't know what they were doing. And and they would have grown up just like all of the other Canaanites. And so God demonstrated mercy to them. So I'm always a little careful, Anonymous, when we talk about justifying something God does. But we have to start from the position that everything God does is holy and just. Here is another anonymous question. I know Christians aren't supposed to be afraid of dying, but I am. How can my faith grow? Uh, Anonymous, I don't think your faith needs to grow. I mean, um, I don't know who told you Christians aren't supposed to be afraid of dying. Uh, We all are. I'll join you in that. Now, I'm not afraid of what happens when I die. But the dying process is something I'm never going to be thrilled with. And, And like anybody else, the older I get, the more afraid of it I am. But this idea that we're not supposed to be afraid of dying is is nonsense. Don't let the enemy lie to you. Don't let other people who think they're spiritual giants lie to you. Everybody's afraid of dying. The last enemy, Paul says, is death. We should be afraid of those enemies, especially that one. You know, it's a a, a sort of an uncomfortable tension between not wanting to die and wanting to be with Jesus. More than anything else in my life, I want to be with Jesus. But I don't want to have to die to do it. I understand what the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Philippi when he said, you know, I'm torn. I don't know what to do. To die and be with Jesus, to depart and be with Jesus is better by far, he said. But living in the body, saying Alive means more service for the one I love. And I think that's the way we're supposed to look at it. So don't worry about being afraid of dying. Just say, Lord, in my fear, I'm going to keep serving you. Now, let me bring this a little closer to home now for all of us because 
this this is something I'm watching play out in our lives with this COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, I'm watching Christians who are afraid, so afraid to die, that they're willing to live their lives locked behind closed doors. Paul and I were talking about this this morning together. You know, when when people are hurting, you go touch and we had a lady in the church who uh, Paula was sharing with me, um, who's who's afraid to go out. And yet in one store she was in, I don't know which one, it doesn't matter, but, but there was a, another lady who fell right where she was. And, and though she was scared of COVID, though she was afraid of, of being exposed, without even thinking, she reached down and she picked the lady up and she was holding her hands and talking to her. And, and my response was, of course, that's because that's who this lady is. That's what we do. So if we're afraid of dying and we're not serving God, then we're already dying spiritually. We're dying inside. Three years ago, I went through two heart operations. A really freak thing happened. and There was no guarantee that I wasn't going to die. And I really had to wrestle with this. I don't want to die this way, Lord. But I want to be with you. And I think in this circumstance that we all find ourselves in together now, it's just one of those things where we've got to say, Lord, thy will, not my will be done. It does not mean for this listener anonymous, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be afraid. I think instinctively that, that will to live is placed in us by God. So this isn't a matter of your faith growing. This is just saying, I'm not going to let fear stop me from serving the Lord. I know people, professing Christians, and whether they're real Christians or not is not the point here. It's between, that's between them and God. But I know people who are committed to stay inside for as long as it takes. What are you going to stay inside for a year? We're going to not serve God? For a year, two years, three years? How long? Are we going to decide because of the length of time that we've already been caught up in this epidemic? Are we going to decide that, well, you know, I don't want to go to church and take the risk? Or are we going to say, Lord, my life is in your hands and I am a servant of the Most High God? And then we go serve people who are hurting. Now, the world that we live in now says, well, that's nonsense. You don't need to go to church. You don't need this. They're now trying to keep us from singing worship songs to God. And there are going to be a lot of Christians who are just too quick to agree. Why? Because they're afraid of dying. Peter, when he was faced with dying, he said, the Lord has made it clear that I'm ready to receive the goal of my salvation. The goal is to be with him. So we all of us, we need to really look deeply inside and determine who we are. And are we willing to let this fear we have keep us from serving God who's called us into his service? And if the answer is yes, then, then you've got to answer the next question, for how long? For how long? It's hard, it takes faith, but it most of all requires us to remember who we are. We're not our own, we're bought with a price. Dwayne says, God revealed himself in visible ways in the Old Testament, the burning bush, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, etc. Why did he stop doing that? Um, Dwayne, I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about not, not those examples but I'm going to talk about God revealing himself in the Old Testament. We see these pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. We see the things like the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and the burning bush. Um, and, and we think, wow, I wish that would happen. But, but we who live in this New Testament construct, we are privileged among all people. He stopped doing it then because he has revealed himself on earth in a human body. 
in the person of his son, our Savior Jesus Christ. If I were to ask Moses, okay, that burning bush thing, pretty cool, but would you rather have a burning bush experience or would you rather see Jesus? Well, the choice is obvious. You know, when Moses, I, I, I love Moses because he was bold. And in, in the, uh, right after the um, golden calf episode, um, God revealed his heart to Moses yet again, negotiated with Moses about the people, the kind of things that they went through all the time. And Moses, just out of nowhere, out of nowhere, he says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now think about that for a moment. God laughed and said, you can't see my glory. If you do, you're going to die. But he, he told Moses, tuck yourself into to the rock as far as you can get in there, get in there. I'm going to let the backside or the afterglow of my glory pass by. And it changed Moses yet again. And yet, we have a full and complete revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The image of God, the exact representation of his being. So my point, Dwayne, is that God doesn't have to keep revealing himself in those supernatural, infrequent revelations. Because he's revealed himself once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know why that's hard for us. You know, we know that Jesus was a real historical figure. We know that he lived, he died. He didn't stay dead. How much more of a revelation of God do we need than that? I'm sure every Old Testament saint who saw Jesus would much rather be able to have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Here is another anonymous question. You always tell when we're getting to touchy subjects because the questions are always anonymous. Pastor Ron, what do you think about transgender men being able to compete against women in sports? By transgender men, I mean, uh, I think you mean transgender women. They're, they're actually biologically men, but they identify as women, and so they want to compete against women. I think it's cheating. I think it's just the silliest thing ever. And I think in some cases it minimizes the work, the, the, the progress that women athletes have made in the world. Uh, suddenly a woman who, competing against other women, um, is, is a, a winner, and then she has to race against biological males, and I, I don't want to argue about who's stronger, but the, the male body, the male musculature is stronger than women. It won't be long, believe me, when we'll have biological males who identify as women who want to fight women. It's already happened once in mixed martial arts. We see it in other sports, track and field. So obviously I think it's cheating. I think we've lost our minds. I think what we really need to do when we deal with this transgender issue is just use what is so obviously true. It doesn't matter how somebody identifies. If they are a biological male or a biological female, that's who they are. And they're stuck with it. It's just that simple. And it's insanity to think that you're putting biological women at anything other than a huge disadvantage when they have to compete against biological males. I think it's unfair. Well, I think we're almost running out of time. Uh, Victor says, I think time for one more question. Got about two and a half minutes. Victor says, how would you react to someone telling you they have a new revelation from God? Victor, I don't know. I'd, I'd just tell him, no, you don't. There's no new revelation from God. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God to, to the world. There aren't going to be any new revelations. I have a saying here at the church, if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. 
So there is no new revelation, and we need to be okay with that. And typically when somebody says, well, I've got a new revelation from God, you should identify them immediately as a false teacher. And try to correct them. If they're uncorrectable, then run from them. Just don't let them come in because that's false doctrine. They're false prophets. And there's nothing that God is going to say in these last days that he hasn't already said in the person of Jesus Christ. It's very important, Victor, that we understand that. You protect yourself by standing firm in what you know is true. Don't look for anything new. So when somebody says, I got a new revelation from God, just tell them, "Uh, I don't think so. I really don't think you do. Okay, thank you. Well, we're going to be running out of time here in a moment. Let me remind you that I'm going to be teaching Genesis chapter 15 tonight. You can watch it at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. A monumentally important chapter. These next two Bible studies, um, I think everybody ought to hear. Uh, The first one just sets up the second one. Um, but but putting them together this week and next Wednesday, uh, I think will will help a lot of us deal with the issues that we're going through here in the year 2020. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Look forward to that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.